been stuck on the road more times than I kind of want to admit. Oftentimes, we we don't make it to the destination, um, and we're stuck on side of the road or end up someplace else. And yeah, and that's that's part of life too. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop, or getting up off your couch to take your kids hiking for the first time, we want you to have the motivation and inspiration you need to chase that next adventure. The Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by Camp Crate, the leaders in fully planned self-guided backpacking adventures, as well as backpacking gear rental. You can check them out at campcrate.net. So there's this new backpacking food company called Peak Refuel. And honestly, I, I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip. Y'all, it was literally the best backpacking food I've ever had in my life. I was so impressed by them that I wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners. So if you keep listening to the episode, I'll tell you how to save 20% off an order with them. Hey friends, check out Powder7.com, new sponsor for the Adventure Sports Podcast. I've worked with these guys for a couple of years, and two of my sons have bought their most recent pairs of skis there. What's cool is that while they do sell new skis, they also sell previously used demo skis. And these demo skis come with demo bindings, so no need to remount anything. And they are sold for less than half of what you would have to pay otherwise. Great deal, great website, great people. Check out powder7.com. Hello, this is Jordan from Netflix. How may I help you? Hey, Jordan. I uh, was wondering, could I get 99 subscriptions to Netflix for free and then pay for the 100th? And then everybody, all 100 people could just use it? No, you cannot. Why is that? Because we only give out one free trial per person per household actually so there's no way that i can pay for one subscription but like 99 other people use it for free no not that i know of all right well thanks anyway all right well thanks for calling netflix and i hope you have a great day thanks jordan look i know we're not as entertaining as netflix but even to them it sounds ridiculous to have a service for absolutely free and the truth is 99 percent of podcast listeners Don't support the shows that they love. And just like something on Netflix, you know, we have production costs. We have hosting costs. There's a lot of costs actually associated with this show. And it takes money and time to produce. So in this season of giving, we ask you, would you like to become a supporter of our show? Because we don't support this show for everybody. You know, this show is is a niche. Not everyone's going to like listening to adventures from all over the world. But you guys do. And when you become a patron of the show, you basically get the upper hand in influencing what we talk about, who we talk to, and what you want because you've shown us that you're a super fan of the show. And that's why we wanted to make it easier for you to support the show. So there is the ability to support the show for $5 a month at patreon.com. But now there's the ability to support the show for a dollar a month. Come on. We've got to be worth $1. Not only do you get to influence the show, you get the satisfaction of knowing you're making this thing happen. So join us in making the Adventure Sports Podcast the absolute best show it can be. Thank you.
Hey friends, Kurt here. Thank you so much for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I have a show that is a little bit unique from our standard shows, and I'm really excited about this one. I have author Roger Thompson with us, and we're going to be doing a review of his latest book called We Stood Upon Stars. This book is about an adventure-lived life. I'm going to say it that way, and Roger can say a lot more about that, but it's a very adventurous book about traveling around through the United States, traveling with family, deeper thoughts about life and relationships and family and things that really matter, but it's written in such an amazing way. I, I was just telling Roger, the way he turns a phrase is remarkable. It's genius. Very, very clever. So I'm excited to share this with you guys. Roger, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, man. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, I've been really enjoying your book, and I haven't finished it yet, Roger, so I'm looking forward to learning more about it during the show here. I look also forward to finishing it and then reading it again. It's that kind of a book. It's just so clever the way that you express your thoughts, and you do it in a way that's so meaningful, and it's tied into nature and creation and adventure so it's right down the you know the the alley of what I really enjoy. So awesome book. Once again, it's We Stood Upon the Stars, and the subtitle is Finding God in Lost Places. But we were talking before we hit record here. It's not an overtly religious book. It's just a a deep thought book. Right. Yeah. I yeah I like to explain it. I feel like most searches tend to be spiritual kind of in themselves, and so the the book certainly hits on some spiritual themes, um, which I think is what people often encounter when they're out there, you know, staring at the mountains or the oceans and so forth. Yeah, I think you're right. I, you, in my mind, it's difficult to stand under the stars and to really appreciate what's going on in this universe without it, it hitting the spirit a little bit, you know? And I believe that adventure sports themselves are good for that. We have so many guests that come on and they talk about um, getting in the zone or, or connecting with something bigger than themselves and, and it, that getting out into creation and being a part of it, it's, uh, it's bigger than just the day to day. There's a spiritual aspect to it. Everybody recognizes that. And so that, that's expressed in this book, but in a delightfully, uh, human way. It's just beautiful. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Well, let's get some backstory here, Roger. Um, you are a surfer. You're a skater, you love fly fishing, snowboarding, so, and that's just part of it. You also do a lot of camping and travel, obviously, from this book, but the point is that you love adventure sports. That's a big part of your life right now. It is. In fact, when I was a, when I was a kid growing up, I lived in a little beach town in Southern California called Ventura, and um, as a kid, I never really felt, I never fit in with more of the traditional sports, and for whatever reason, once I started surfing and snowboarding, you know, I'm of the generation of when we started snowboarding, it was brand new to most mountains. Um, and so I'm kind of, uh, was in that first wave of snowboarders. But, um, when I started finding those sports, it just kind of fit me. And I felt like I've kind of found a little bit about who I am in. So I have a long, long history with all these, uh, kind of more adventure sports. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I, now I'm doing it with my kids, like I, we just got back from the beach where my son was surfing, and so it's just a real part of deep part of who we are. Mm, yeah, and your book starts out by in one of the early chapters talking about a surfing trip down into Mexico, 
um, where people can get a, a, a bit of the flavor of that adventurous lifestyle. Man, you talk about the adventure of everyday life in this book, too. I, I so much enjoyed the chapter about, um, let's call it the negotiations between you and your wife or, or uh, about, about whether or not to have children. Right. right. And I won't even, it's really not negotiation so much as it is maneuvering somehow, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid, maybe avoidance. <laughs> but anyway, you pull the adventure of everyday life into this book too, which is so much fun. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of blabbing here. What if we read an excerpt from the book so that the listeners could get a feel for what I'm talking about? Do you have one that you could read for us? Sure. Yeah. I'd love to. Um, yeah. I've got one that's a, that's a fly fishing one that, uh, the setup is, um, and I don't want to be too heavy right off the bat here, but the setup is, is after someone close to me had passed away and I was looking for a, a, kind of a, a place to be, to start experiencing some healing. And so I went to one of my secret fishing holes and it turned and, and, and the fishing hole kind of gave me a secret, I suppose is the best way to set that up. But yeah, I'll, I'll jump into this reading and we'll, we'll kind of go through it. Right on. There aren't many secret fishing holes left, particularly in California. I have a few, and though I'm sure they're no secrets, I've never seen anyone else fishing them. I've discovered one of my favorites on the last day of fishing season. The known holes were packed, and I was searching for solitude. It was late in the fall, and at its higher elevation, trees had lost their leaves, leaving patches of brown among the evergreens. But along this creek, the colors held. They blazed in angled sunlight until afternoon winds snatched the last bits of color from cottonwoods, delivering leaves softly to the water below red and gold and yellow, like tiny rafts in the current. Below the leaves swam wild trout. Getting to this section of the creek required navigating a rutted dirt road and a short hike down a steep ravine. Yet for difficulty of access, it was not remote. It was in the shadow of the same peaks that shaded better-known fishing holes. I'm usually in a rush to get to the water, but on this day, things were moving in slow motion. Someone I loved had just died. Death is not done well in our culture. The expectations is always to move on. I was finding this hard to do. When the words of counselors and clergy fall short, sometimes fishing helps. There are clear, there's a clearer voice that echoes the mountains. At wise point, the creek was little larger than a one-way street and never more than waist deep. The brush grew thick along the banks and shaded the edges. Opening to the sky were, the openings to the sky were narrower than a creek, but through them the sun shone strong and reflected from the water surface making the gold in the trees glow from below. The creek could only be fished from the middle. With no room for back cast, I would have to improvise with low sidearm casting, holding about 20 feet of line only inches above the water surface. In rivers below autumn canyons of cottonwoods, only the sounds, the only sounds are moving water, and the highest, only the highest peaks can be seen. The world is edited and made simple. My thoughts were reduced to fish, and which fly would make a wild trout rise. Death is a knot at the end of a fly line that cannot be undone, yet it connects us with something bigger, a hope. I tie a fly on the line. I'm fishing for that part of me that has gone to be with the one I loved. I've come to realize much of mourning is trying to recapture treasures buried with our loved ones, not things, but time spent, moments accumulated. It's hard and beautiful, filled with sorrow and joy. When someone we love dies, these moments are turned into something more perfect. I mourn for these moments, and I wonder if I could ever be whole once they are gone. I recall experiences of my grandfather in time with a four-count rhythm and a fly line looping through shadows upon water. On the surface, all that has passed is in motion. The river is clearing its own mind, removing dying leaves of fall and preparing for a new season. 
Below death, there's life. Caddis and mayflies and blue-winged olives lay eggs in the water. The eggs later will emerge and hatch as aquatic flies that nourish wild trout. I cast my fly delicately between fallen leaves. It drifts for a moment and then disappears in a splash. The line goes erratic. My fly rod pulses with energy, and every movement of the fish registers to the rod and into my palm. The fish and I are inextricably connected. Through a knot holding artificial fly, now hooked in the mouth of a wild trout, I become part of the river and part of the season and part of the mountains and part of the water. The trout fights with all the instincts of its wildness. The tip of my rod jerks toward fallen branches along the creek bank. I try to lead it another direction. The rod jerks to the left, then right. The, fi the fish fighting is one twice its size. I carefully reel in line, keeping steady pressure, but not so much that I might break the tippet. Near my boots, the orange dots along the trout's sides shine like little suns. The fish makes one last attempt and goes quiet. With wetted hands, I cradle the fish and carefully remove the fly. The trout is small, no more than eight or nine inches in length. However, the life in it is bigger. It connects me more intimately with this world. I release the trout, and it goes on with its search for food. The wounds of loss never will heal fully. I always leave the water more whole. As I make new memories, I am remaking the part of me that was lost with my grandfather's death. I am restitching myself with a beauty whose purpose is not to heal, but to help complete. I have brought many problems to the stretch of water of the years. Sometimes I catch fish, sometimes I don't. But in search of trout, I always find what I need. How this fishing hole does this, I may never know. This is its secret. Mm. Very cool, man. Very nice. Thank you. Most of the book is pretty darn humorous. And <laughs> that is really, that section yeah, there is really meaningful. Yeah, that one gets a little deep and poetic. But yeah, there's um, a ton of funny stories. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, it's, Sometimes it's harder to read the short section of a funny story because the setup on those is so long. Right. Um, but yeah, I would I would actually say, in spite of what I just read, this book is probably leans more heavily on humor than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I I have chuckled and laughed, and and I say, hey, honey, listen to this, and and I read a section to my wife, Anne, and you know, it's one of those books that uh, pulls you in just because of the way that it communicates to what it means to be human but it does so in such a clever way that uh yeah it, it, it's it's really a fun read so let's go back to adventure and what it means in your life um you have chosen an adventure focused lifestyle here lots of travel with your family lots of adventurous sports with your fly fishing and snowboarding and surfing and that sort of thing what does adventure mean to you you know, um, for me, it's about kind of just getting out there and getting out from the mundane. I feel like the world is set up in a way that it almost feels like it's trying to trap us into something that we didn't really want to become. Um, and and the adventure kind of breaks us free of that. Um, and I know with my own family, it also gets us in a place where, um, where when you're out there and having you know, kind of this, whatever the adventure might be, we get to connect in a deeper way as well. You know, we're either trying to navigate a stream together, we're trying to land a fish together, we're kind of doing figure eights on our snowboards down the mountain together. Whatever happens to be, there's a connection that happens between us that is just hard to replicate when you're, you know, under a roof or tied down with uh, the trappings of the lives we kind of build around us. So adventure has really kind of been a core component of of who we are and who I am. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And I think you're right. 
I think you're right about how when we get outside, out into nature and start trying to do something, right, then it pulls people together. I've said many times on the show how community builds around adventure sports. And it's oh, yeah, not just sure. family, it's community. When people that have common interests get out and start you know, celebrating the common interests that they have together, then, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome the way yeah. that that works. So very, very yeah, cool. I had, I had a fun, yeah, my, my boys got me an old school uh, skateboarding deck for Father's Day, you know, a couple weeks back. And we, I took my youngest son. We were in a skate shop yesterday. And when you talk about community, this the guy who was helping me is the same guy that I've known in that skate shop now for, gosh, 25, 30 years. Um, and it was, we got to talk about, not only are we talking about skateboarding and our old stories, skateboarding, but he's still trying to skate. I'm trying to, you know, get out there and roll around a little bit, but it was such a cool community that was in there. And, um, and his con, like his parting comments were, you know, don't go too hard now because, you know, we don't want to see you hurt your back. You know, it's the, 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 the conversations have shifted from when we used to talk about how to shred together to now we have to <laughs> be a little more careful. But underneath all that, this cool sense of history and community with these folks that kind of came from the sport itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It's it's fun, too, because of what you're talking about. You have history with people and the sport. As you age, it might change the way we do some of these sports, but it also builds in that whole oh, that finesse and that that history, like I said, or I'm searching for words here, but the uh, the connection that you have with somebody that goes back that's centered around a sport, it makes uh, the friendship all the richer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you have these shared, yeah, it's shared moments and things you can draw on. And, um, you know, and then it's nice that whatever your sport is, it's, you know, if you have a buddy you can go grab some waves with or go catch some fish or do whatever, there's just something that kind of continually uh, stitches you guys, stitches the relationship together. I remember on my first bike trip, we were on the Alaskan Highway, my buddy and I, and we were absolutely total idiots. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> we ran out of food a bunch, and it really kind of scarred us because I remember being so, I remember crying one time thinking about key lime pie because <laughs> we were so hungry, and it was we were so far from the next uh, spot to get food. And it kind of scarred me, and my wife even makes fun of me now because I tend to way overpack, even for day trips, and I don't really have to do that now because, uh, you know, we, we buy from Peak Refuel, and they have these awesome freeze-dried meals. Uh, it's lightweight. It weighs almost nothing uh, when there's no water in it, and it's a lot of food. It tastes awesome. So gone are the days of carrying way too much food. And hello to the days where we're only carrying Peak. If you'd like to give Peak Refuel a try, just go to their website, order some food, and at checkout, just use the code ASP20 at checkout to get 20% off. So give them a shot. Let's talk about surfing for a little bit. I know that that's been a big one for you. What has surfing done for you in your life? Yeah, surfing, um, gosh, I mean, it's probably been one of the, the most important things in my life is, you know, started as a, as a kid, like I said, I didn't fit into the traditional sports and, and quite honestly, I don't think I fit in anywhere. And I, you know, when I was going through those identity things that you deal with as a young boy, surfing was the place where I could go and be truly myself. Um, there was a connection there, obviously the, the water, 
doesn't ask anything of you uh, in terms of your background or socioeconomics or any of those kinds of things. It asks something deeper of you. Um, it asks for respect and it asks for caution and it asks for you know these other things. And so as I started surfing and it became a part of my life, it almost didn't matter what was happening in school or other parts of my life because the the, the, the waves were always there for me and the ocean was always there to step into that gap of um, you know what I wanted in my life and maybe what wasn't there or, or any gap I had, the ocean could kind of fill that for me. Hmm. It's kind of a safe haven in a way, huh? Oh, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned community earlier, as you, as you get older and my friends started revolving around that, it became a place for us to go on surf trips together and, um, you know, and then, or just even, you know, daily kind of surf life. It just, it's provided a bit of an anchoring, um, for, for me throughout my life. Mm. You know, I've been landlocked most of my life. But I've made it to the coast several times, and I did a fair amount of body surfing, and I've been in some really big waves that just tore me up. I'll tell you, mm -hmm. they tore me up. You've got to respect it. I've I've only been surfing on a surfboard one time, and it was amazingly challenging for me. Like I have to right. ask for people that haven't tried surfing or maybe they're trying to learn how, how long does it take to get past that it's just kicking your butt phase? <laughs> you know, um, it's probably a good handful of sessions um, before you can really kind of get up and, en and enjoy yourself on something. And some of that has to do with the kind of wave that you're you're surfing on and the equipment that you have. There's some ways to kind of expedite that. But when I take people who are just learning, it usually takes a few sessions before they really kind of start to enjoy themselves the rest of the time they're just tired and frustrated <laughs> tired and frustrated you <laughs> yeah. know i i've always respected the mystery of surfing and it's on so many different levels but people talk about getting a feel for the ocean learning how to mm -hmm. read the waves and knowing when mm -hmm. the next good one's going to come you know it's kind of a, a gut instinct sort of a thing but then there's also the whole idea of water in general you can't see below it very well. You see the surface, mm -hmm. but there's a whole world below that's teeming with more different kinds of life than we can even imagine. And yet we're on the surface. Do you ever get out there and kind of want to pull your arms and legs up on the board and, <laughs> and kind of like, <laughs> well, what's down there? Yeah, we. I, I try to get below the surface as much as I can, too, to see what's going on down there. But, um, but what you talked about in terms of reading the water, that is so true. And I found... Um, you know, the, those cues that are on the water surface are only subtleties, right, that are kind of out there. And um, when you learn to read those subtleties, you actually find much deeper truths. Um, you can read currents by what's happening on the surface of the water. You can kind of know when, like, this net set wave is going to come on. And so we spend a lot of time as surfers trying to learn how to read the water. And ironically, it kind of transfers over to uh, fishing as well. Fly fishing is very much about trying to see what's, reading the surface of the water and trying to make some determination of what's happening below. Mm. Um, but I've, yeah, I spent a great deal of my life studying the surface of water. <laughs> well, it sounds kind of funny until you get into it and it's like, dang, this is, this is a real thing. You know, yeah. one of my favorite things to do is to just take a moment to remember that water is what makes this planet live. If we mm. didn't have frozen liquid, and gas water, then life on this planet couldn't be like it is, right? That's and, right. 
it, it and then to stop and say, you know, now man, I don't know how many planets, extrasolar planets they've found and and how many they think might be in what they call the Goldilocks zone. But they're still kind of guessing at could it be possible for liquid water on that planet? And and it's it's such a rare thing that you, you have to take a moment and realize we take it for granted, but it's what makes our existence possible. And well, yeah, uh, and we're made. Our bodies are largely of water. Um, yeah, you can't help but think that um, that we have a special connection to water, both you know, physically and spiritually because we're of similar substance, you know? Yeah, no doubt. I, I encourage our listeners, next time you're by a, a stream or a lake or something, stop and, and put your hand on the surface of the water. Don't sink it in. Just set it on the surface and let the surface tension kind of move through your fingers. Feel it the way that it resists and works with you. And then look out across the water and try to remember what that water is and how valuable it is. Um, it's just kind of a cool experience. Take a moment to notice it, you know? I love that. That's Yeah, that's such great advice. That's cool. <laughs> well, and what's fun about this is that your book is kind of like this, too. You you take the simple things and you dive into the deeper meanings. And you you help us to understand more about life by the illustrations that we can see on the surface of things, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's absolutely right. Um, how about another one? Tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab one. This is almost random. I just kind of randomly opened the book. I haven't even read it all yet. I'm going to read a section. Good. Uh, this is in the Big Sur part under Highway Poetry. <laughs> uh, that all changed past Ragged Point to the north along the Big Sur section of Highway 1. Mountains and ocean become curves of tangled land and water. Waves pulsed rhythmically, carving at the stone. The view is of two opposites, each magnificent in its own right, but together something utterly amazing. Fresh waterfalls from forested cliffs directly to the sand, where rocks rise from the sea with stripes of barnacles at the high tide mark. In its clashing are formed arches and sea stacks and a diversity of life not found anywhere else. The beauty comes in the opposites. So there's the surface. Here we go into the deep. When I first met my wife, (laughs) let me go back. The beauty comes in opposites. When I first met my wife, I tried to win her affection in the same way. I won that of friends and admirers through bold acts of masculinity and well-edited versions of myself. I took her to the nicest restaurants I could afford. I introduced her to influential friends. I told her about my grand plans and assured her of my future success. She wasn't impressed. She loved the little things, the details, such as the thoughtfulness of opening a door or simply holding hands. A woman's heart is not won by strength or masked truth. It's won by poetry. A handful of flowers and a bottle of her favorite wine, even if you prefer beer, If you want to truly be a man, study the heart of a woman. It is the landscape we were made to travel. I love it. Yeah. Remember, that's a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I like about the whole book is that it's just like that. It's full of all the things that make you you take pause and think and go, yeah. You know, it's really Mm -hmm. cool that way. Yeah, I think that I know for me, and I don't know how this is for you, but but I, I tend to you know, that's about what you just read was actually about a fairly simple moment. But, um, but if I don't stop and, and, and pay attention to what's happening there, you lose all that. There's, 
such depth and even some of the simple moments in our lives um, that I try to, I'm trying harder and harder as I get older to really appreciate those simple things because under that simplicity, there's something really rich and deep. Yeah. And, and if we can learn to appreciate those moments, you know, a happy life is a sum of happy moments. Mm-hmm. And, right. and the only way to really enjoy life is to be present, fully present in the moment, like you're talking about. Any advice for us on how to appreciate those simpler things? You know, um, gosh, well, for, for me, and I struggle with that just as much as anybody else, but, um, for me, the, the practice is because of doing it over and over and over again. Um, and so I would just advise people to get themselves into those situations as often as possible. Um, because what you won't see on the first, you know, time out, the first time the Big Sur isn't the same. I saw different things on my second and on my third and my fourth time. And I think this experience is almost like if you're learning a, how to play guitar, you're learning how to do something else, there's a repetition that develops muscle memory. And so I think with these kind of this adventurous lifestyle and kind of this seeking of deeper truth, some of that has to do with repetition and developing the muscle memory of paying attention to, like what you said, put your hand in the water and let the river work around your hand. Do that once and you'll experience something. Do that five times and you'll actually probably land on something even deeper. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And it really is true. I like what you said about guitar. You know, when people mm-hmm. first learn to play guitar, it's just such a thrill to, to get a clean chord to sound. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then over time, they transition between chords smoothly, and that's exciting. Uh-huh. And then it gets to right. the point that you can start doing hammer-ons and lift-offs, and, and suddenly yeah. the music starts to take on a life of its own. And then it just progresses from there, but it's through a lot of repetition that the the experience gets richer and richer and richer. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. I mean, and, and, you know, if I could say, kind of, again, referring to the boy you just read, in, in my marriage, it took takes lots of repetition of going and, and doing those things. It just, I think we often wonder why relationships don't work, um, because we want something to happen immediately, and it just, it doesn't. It takes, you know, the, there's a lot of work that goes into those, but the more you do that, the more you travel a woman's heart the more familiar you get in that landscape and you can kind of know the, the turns you want to make and then all that. But it takes a lot of time traveling there to, to, to know how to navigate that. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit of the part that you wrote about just the whole adventure of trying to decide when it was time to have children with your wife. May I do that? <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are traveling and and you're walking around and everywhere you look there these ladies pushing baby carriages <laughs> and your wife says you know what that makes me think of and you keep changing the subject right and after about four rounds of this she pins you down and so you look at her and you say let's get a dog <laughs> <laughs> this is the ultimate diversion technique oh yeah and then you talk about raising the dog and the joys of of all of that and how much this dog becomes a part of your family and then i think it was one morning you're sitting in a chair and the dog comes in and he's in your lap or something and and you're petting this dog and your wife walks in and says you know what that makes me think of (laughs) (laughs) so true Uh, well that's the fun of it isn't it 
Right. Yeah, and, and I suppose we should let guys know that the only the pup only buys the puppy only buys you about maybe a year at most. So just yeah. be prepared. <laughs> yeah, then you have a dog that's looking for a child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Very, very fun. Well, Roger, how about another section from your book? I'm enjoying it so much. Do you have another one you could read for us? Yeah, I do. Let me um let me pull one up here. Uh this one is actually takes place in uh if you've ever been to Marfa, Texas and Big Bend National Park in kind of southern Texas, but um this one kind of takes place out in that area. Um so let me jump into it. I've been listening to my father's music. Eventually we lose the voices that mean the most to us. They drown in noise or in death or in other voices or they just fade away. I have no memory of the sound of my father, but his voice had come back to me in the music. When I hear the voices of Don Henley or Glenn Fry from the Eagles or LaVon Helm from the band, I can see my dad singing in the cab of his beat-up truck, full of joy, full of life, with background vocals of a laboring Chevy engine and rambling sounds of the highway. His voice comes back to me in that space on the highway after the guitar solo when the song returns home. I'm the last of the men in my father's line, keeping it true until one day my boys become men. Our history has been written by the road. Some of that history has been lost, and I've gone to West Texas to search the highway for clues. I went first, before my boys were born, to the panhandle to look for anything remaining from my great-grandfather and to drive the roads that led him and my grandfather west. I hoped for discovery that would help navigate the roads ahead, marriage, career, life, death. Not all searches are about answers. Some searches are only about the search. They reveal something about who we are or who we are meant to be. The longing for beauty tells us we were made for beauty. The longing to share a campfire with someone we love or are beginning to love tells us we were made for love. The longing itself tells us there is something or someone that draws our hearts. So the search grabs hold and we can't explain why. It comes on like a sickness. And the only cure is to pack some maps and rations and go. We are not made for the cages we've erected around ourselves. We are meant for freedom. Where trees and mountaintops point to the stars and where canyons echo and waters cool, and where wind is scrubbed clean by prairie grass. Those are the lost places where we go to find God. Mm. Yeah, I like that. The Adventure Sports Podcast is also brought to you by Powder 7 Ski Shop. Powder 7 is Colorado's premier homegrown and family-owned ski shop. Online at powder7.com, they offer a huge selection of new and used ski gear, plus full tech and boot fitting services at their shop in Golden. With personalized customer service, they set up skiers from all over the world with perfect gear. From brands like Kessley, Rosignol, Black Crows, and Head, Powder 7 is all skiing all the time. So check out powder7.com to learn more. Now, back to the episode. You know, the the searching that you talk about there made me think about, uh, in the book there's a reoccurring theme uh, of you choosing a road that your wife is trying to get you not to go down and even your, your kids saying, dad, no, not this. And, <laughs> and wandering <laughs> into the, into the great unknown and getting into all sorts of trouble. What is it with maps and men and getting lost? What, what draws you off the map, so to speak? Yeah, I think that, gosh, I, you know, I kind of have this, this, this theory that, you know, our, as our as our world gets more and more mapped and gridded, and we have GPS phones in our pockets, that we as as men, I think, tend to get more lost with that because it's moving away from our nature. You know, my nature is to want to be kind of lost and have to 
discover something on my own that's not being fed to me from somewhere um, and to discover kind of if I can make it, you know, if I can make it back, you know, if I can, if I I get myself lost on this trail, is there, do I have what it takes to, to to make it back and bring my family back safely? Um, So far, fortunately, I'm succeeding, but, you know, I suppose one day, you know, we may not, but I just think that there's something that draws us out there because, you know, when we get off the grid, we become more alive and more free and all of our senses are at work. Um, And it just, I think that's where we feel more like, men. Yeah, I wonder why that is. You know, women often say that men don't like to stop and ask directions, and there might be a male pride issue going on there and a lot of other <laughs> stuff, but there's also that sense of discovery that drives it, I think. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. it's like, I don't want someone to tell me. I want to figure it out. I want to see That's what's right. around the next corner, and yeah, you know, if it takes me a place I didn't mean to go, then I might have a life experience that I needed to have. Exactly. I mean, I've actually had some of my best discoveries kind of getting lost i've discovered whole towns i didn't know existed because i was someplace where i didn't know where i was and you make a turn and i ended up in, in fact one's uh, this place called phillipsburg montana we were just driving down some road i didn't know where we were and we'd make this turn and all of a sudden we're in this town that's become now one of our favorite towns to to visit wow and if i was if i was paying attention to my map i would have never found that because i would have just been so focused on the destination i would have lost the journey <laughs> so you're talking about getting stuck down these roads. I got to read the names of some of your chapters here. Um, hmm. Zen and the Art of Vanagon Maintenance, Part One, with the the subheading here, Mariposa, California. <laughs> then two chapters later, Zen and the Art of Vanagon Maintenance, Part Two, but this time Spearfish Canyon, South Dakota. And then we go all the way to Chapter 29, Zen and the Art of Vanagon Maintenance Part 3. Now we're in Park City, Utah. So it sounds like you've had some challenges getting back out again sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I've been stuck on the road more times than I kind of want to admit. Um, We we travel a lot. We have a a VW, um, a four-wheel drive VW van. It's called a Synchro Westphalia. Um, And so that's where we travel around a lot. And and oftentimes we we don't make it to the destination, <laughs> um, and we're stuck on the side of the road or end up someplace else. And yeah, you know, and that's that's part of life too. And, I, and we've actually learned to appreciate that. In fact, my wife and I we were stuck someplace. Um, we're going into it's in one of those chapters, one of those Zen chapters. We're heading into Yosemite, and basically lost our engine, and we're coasted down to this dark kind of canyon. Um, and you know, my, my son tells me, daddy, this is the darkest night of my life. And my, my wife and I almost turned to each other like, you know, there our kids are going to learn more about how we handle this than they will with anything else that we can do right now. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was an important, it ended up being a really important part of our kind of parenting journey was how to deal with the fact that our engine just blew and we coasted in this Canyon. We don't know where we are and we only have two days worth of food. <laughs> How did it turn out, or do I have to read the book? Oh well, I'll tell you what. Yeah, yeah, you can read the book to get the details. We were fortunately we're still all alive, and um, and my kids still talk to me. But um, yeah, some really cool things happened there, and um, I'll let you read the book to get the rest of it. But um, but things even bordering almost on the miraculous kind of took place. Um, and our takeaway from that trip was completely, what we went into it thinking was going to happen was completely different than what we got out of it. And what we got out of it was so much more important than what we could have imagined. Um, and that's, you know, that's yes, earlier what, how 
tried to find adventure, I think that's part of it. Yeah. You got to be willing to face some of those challenges and hardships if you're, if you're willing to go that far off the beaten path, I think. But mm -hmm. what is it that makes it so stressful when things don't go the way that we think they should? Oh, man, that's, I think, I think maybe control. You know, we want to be in control and recognizing that maybe there's times where we're not in control is probably not so great for us. Yeah. Yeah, you have to give yourself up to something bigger to, to, to find the freedom from that. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think another aspect is time because mm -hmm. we always have a time schedule in mind. When things don't go right, then time is the first thing to go, right? Yeah. So how do you let go of the time schedule on these trips? Yeah, you know, I, before I even go, I kind of put myself into that zone. So we've, you know, th this is one of the things that comes with, like I said earlier, the, the repetition and the practice. Um, but, you know, I, I know that whenever I'm starting to head someplace, there's probably only about 50% chance I might actually get there. <laughs> and so <laughs> once you kind of, and then you start the journey anyways with that expectation, and all of a sudden everything's on the upside. There's not a lot of downside. Um and so some of that is, you know, for me, understanding that the time isn't ultimately mine to decide. You know, it's kind of like that, I don't know if you like Lord of the Rings, but that Gandalf line, it's, you know, ultimately it's what we decide to do with the time that's been given us. Um, right. Yeah. And so that's, and, and so whether it's broke down the side of the road, whether it's, you know, getting to your destination or not, you know, whatever time you've been given to do that, I think that's doing the most you can with that. This becomes the key thing. Well, that's uh, that's wisdom right there. I think the hardest part that a lot of people have with adventure is the time constraints. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, we have all these weekend warriors, and, and I celebrate weekend warriors. It's the way to go. I mean, if that's, if that's your opportunity to have adventures and get outside and experience life on a, on a bigger level, then go for it. Don't, don't fall into the trap of being the weekend couch potato. But weekends are short, you know, there's a, you have to yeah. get there, you have to do something, you have to get back again. And if anything goes wrong, sometimes you've got a boss staring at you on Monday morning, wondering where you are, you know? Right. Yeah, those are, that's, I, I definitely think those are tough for sure. Um, man, yeah. And <laughs> sometimes you just, you can't control what happens when you get out there. You'll know it's, if you're going to make it back or not. Yeah. Hey, here's another paragraph I just found. I'm going to read this one about fly fishing. The fish still hadn't tired. It continued to burst with energy, each time folding Chuck's fly rod in half. I could see it was a wild brown trout by the bright orange spots along its lateral line. It looked to be about 18 inches in length, maybe more, and so thick in the middle, I wondered how it fit in the shallow riffle where it was hooked. I got positioned with the net and instructed Chuck to lead the fish toward me. The net didn't seem big enough. I reached for the trout, and suddenly the knot attaching the fly to the tippet broke. The rod recoiled, and the line whipped back with a sudden release of tension. We stood in the water, stunned, silent as church mice. Chuck broke the silence first. Does that count? It does for me. <laughs> <laughs> when I was... Uh... I was doing an interview, uh, uh, interview with some group of people I was speaking with uh, recently, and uh, someone asked me what my favorite part about the book was. And I said that in my books, the fish are always bigger in the stories. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
So the title of that chapter is called Whiskey and Firelight. What do you mean by that title? Yeah, that that chapter, it's, you know, obviously my buddy Chuck, we went on this fishing trip together, and we were both kind of at a point, you know, in midlife where we were struggling with um, the tension that we feel with work. He's a fireman, you know, I'm an author, amongst other things. But in both cases, um, our work just seems like it gets more and more demanding, and it's starting to get between us and our wives, us and our kids. And so... <laughs> our solution is to go fishing. I'm not sure if that's the best solution or not, but so we decided to go fishing together. Um, and we had this great big experience. And, um, but at the end of that chapter, kind of at the end of that trip, there was this moment where Chuck and I would fish, we'd call all sorts of fish. We'd done some cool things. And then we decided that kind of my tradition is we'd break out the whiskey at the end of the day around the fire. And you kind of recount the day a little bit, but there's something that happens I'm sure you've experienced this too, but when you're out there, we were under the stars, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, just Chuck and I, we're the only guys there, having this fire and a drink of whiskey, and there's something that's sealed in our friendship, this sense of, hey, this is an important moment, and uh, and it's sealed with this whiskey and firelight um, that we're going we're gonna to try to not let work rob us of the things that matter most to us, whatever that is, whatever we have to do to fight against that, we're going to fight against that together. And ever since that moment, you know, we get Chuck and I get together for beer pretty regularly. Um, and that's the, one of the first things we talk about is, you know, how's that going? How's that, you know, that commitment that we made with the whiskey and the firelight, how's that going? So that's, that's kind of the, the story behind the story of that chapter. <laughs> it, in a way, it, it sounds like communion. <laughs> yeah, you know, it <laughs> it's about commitments and and right and reaching for a, a more important purpose, maybe. You know, yeah. I wanted to point out just by looking at your uh, your chapters again, I want to rattle off the locations because your book takes us places. It's not just thought, right? It's it's not right. just exploring ideas. It's it's going all over the place. So we've got Joshua Tree, Ventura, California, Northern Baja, Mexico. We've got Utah, Rocky Mountain National Park, Grays River, Wyoming, uh, Highway 49, California, Lake Tahoe, Sonoma, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Montana, um, Channel Islands National Park, Paradise Valley, Yellowstone River, Montana, Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming. I mean, you're, you're going all over the West here. We've got South Dakota. We've got more Montana and California, Glacier National Park, San Juan Islands in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest, and even Big Bend National Park in Texas. Um, so that's also fun. You visit a lot of national parks and famous natural places, and they're, that's the backdrop. That's the setting for the stories that you weave through this tapestry. So I wanted yeah. to make sure that everyone knew that. Oh yeah, no. Thanks for pointing it out because there, there is the, the at the heart of this. There, it's, it's a travel adventure book, um, and one of the things I, I wanted to really accomplish was uh, I was trying to find that line because I've read, I read, yeah, as you can imagine, I read lots of kind of travel books, and they're really great on the how to, like how to go do this or how to, you know, what to what to do in Montana or what to do here or there. But um, but I never, I read, don't, I read at least seldomly if I come across something that really stokes my heart to want to go to travel. And so what I wanted to do with this was a little bit of both is I wanted someone to read these stories and get 
inspired to want to go travel. And then once they get there, there's a map that goes with every single story. It's a hand-drawn map that my mom and I did. And in that map, I give out kind of where my favorite breweries are, where my favorite kind of tacos are, or barbecue. And so if you do end up in going to the Phillipsburg, Montana, um, because you like that chapter and it motivates you to go there, then I wanted to, to give some real practical insights to that area too. So the maps uh, do that. There's over 300 and something re- like recommendations, travel tips, recommendations in the book as well. So I wanted to blend both those things together, uh, which I hadn't seen done before. And maybe it has, I missed it, but that's one of the things I really love about this book was kind of blending the, 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 the whys with the hows. <laughs> that's fun. I randomly opened up to one of your maps so that I could look at it while you were talking about this. Mm-hmm. And and this one is Utah, Park City area. It says, my favorite fishing guide in Utah is Justin Harding with Utah Pro Fly Fishing. <laughs> Contact him for guide services, and if you won't pay unless you catch a fish. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's his deal. He says if uh, anybody I send his way, that they won't pay unless they catch a fish. <laughs> I love it. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, these maps are awesome, dude. Yeah, they're super fun. And um, and I do that like with Justin, um, you know, in, in places where there's fly fishing, I actually list the guides and I know most of them personally. Um, and then like when you're down, if I have a chapter on Ventura, when you're here, um, if you ever want to come out and surf, I list the, the people to call to, to teach you how to surf too. Um, so I really want the, you know, the resource people to have these adventures. Right. Uh, speaking of, you said that you had adventure guides on your website. Oh yeah, yeah. I've actually got two of them. Um, one is, uh, and my website's RogerWThompson.com. Um, one is a camping guide, and it's a bit of a response to you know the book where I had I started to get people asking me, well, hey, I've never camped before, and I want to do it, but you know they're intimidated, um, and so I put together a camping guide, which is kind of a real basic view of camping, you know, um, like how to kind of what you need gear wise, kind of how to find a campsite, what, how to set one up and those kinds of things. And so, um, so that's a lot of fun. And then for Father's Day, we put out also kind of a father-child adventure guide. Um, and this is, has to do more specifically with how I plan adventures with my kids um, and how to kind of execute those adventures. So both of those resources are available on the website. And I think that anyone who's kind of just getting into this will, will, will find those to be really helpful for them. And that's RogerWThompson.com. Yeah, that's right. RogerWThompson.com. And uh, the name of this book is We Stood Upon Stars, subtitled Finding God in Lost Places. Uh, you had another book, though, that you wrote previously. What, what's that book about? Yeah, I, yeah, I wrote my first book, um, you know, and just to real quickly, a little backstory. It's like, I, I haven't... I didn't ever thought of myself as a writer. Writing has kind of come in kind of a midlife time of my life, you know, life. Um, and so my first book, I actually wrote the story of my best friend and I growing up together kind of in the eighties on our, in our beach town in Southern California. Uh, and it's just a tremendous book on friendship. And it's kind of a deep dive into what uh, a true bonding friendship between males looks like, but it really could be for anyone. Um, it's called my best friend's funeral because it takes place, kind of at his funeral and you know mm. obviously that's that's heavy and and so forth and that's the time when we tend to evaluate these things um but the the kind of the story how that book came to be is we we played we played in punk bands together growing up and we were 
super into punk rock music and we traveled a little bit and and our goal was always to play our local theater which is called the Ventura Theater um, and we never got a chance to play but we always that was always our dream was to sell out the theater well when Tim passed away I had to do his eulogy we did it at that Ventura Theater and there was a moment where I stepped onto the stage and the whole theater was sold out and it just dawned on me. I was like, man, we've actually, Tim, through his life, sold out the Ventura Theater. Wow. Um, and I wanted to kind of honor him and also talk about for all of us who are trying to find out how to live a meaningful life, how do you live a life that's so meaningful that it'll sell out the theater? So anyways, yeah, that's that other book, my first book called My Best Friend's Funeral. Mm, and people can find that on Amazon? Yeah, that's available on Amazon. Um yeah, and then my newest one, you know, that we sit up on stars is on Amazon as well. But this one's also going to be in whatever your local bookstore is as well. Very cool. We stood upon stars. And when does this release? I have a pre-release version here. So do you know when this is coming out? It actually just came out a couple weeks ago. Beautiful. So it's I a, love the timing. Yeah, out, yeah, perfect. Yeah, it's out now. So go to your local bookstore and pick it up. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. So local bookstore, Amazon, the name of the book again, We Stood Upon Stars. Roger, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time visiting about this. Uh, I just feel like you're a man after my own heart. It's a lot of fun to visit with you and to get to know you a little bit. Do you have one more passage that you could uh, close out the show with? <laughs> um, yes, let me let me dig one up here. So I'm going to read um, one of the Zen and the a segment from the Zen and Art of Vanagon Maintenance. This is one from Part 2 in Spearfish Canyon, South Dakota. The red light was flashing and the oil alarm was buzzing and the kids were listening and I was trying to keep it together. I'm not sure where we were, somewhere in South Dakota, maybe, or it could have been Nebraska. There weren't many signs or cars. Daddy, where are we? I'm not sure. Are you going to fix the van? I went to the motions of fixing the van, mostly for theater, so my kids wouldn't lose complete confidence in me. For miles, the mutiny had been brewing in the back seat. If I lost it now, the inmates would take over. <laughs> the engine was in the rear of the van, under the storage area, and everybody knew the routine. It's a bucket brigade process of removing camping gear and sleeping bags to make it possible to get to the engine compartment. I looked at a jumble of metal and wires, not with hopes of identifying the problem, but hoping I could be left alone while I fought inner demons and exalting my soul. I just wanted a moment of quiet. What's that, Daddy? I was like a possum, hoping if I stood still, he might go away. Daddy, what is it? That's the engine. My younger son pointed to something more specific. What's that, Daddy? That, son, is the alternator. I had no idea what it was or even what he was pointing at. I wasn't paying much attention. What's that? The starter. What's that? A pipe. What's that? The alternator? You already said that. <laughs> I hate this game. <laughs> My older son didn't bother with questions. He walked off to practice his pitching by throwing stones at the rotting fence. We had pulled off the road near a stagnant pond, and the mosquitoes found blood. My wife stayed busy spraying, spraying bug spray and looking for snacks because she knew we'd be here a while. I hoped my younger son would lose interest, but all he seemed to care about was what some chunk of metal in the engine compartment was for. It's a backup alternator. Why does the <laughs> van need a backup? Listen, I'm trying to fix the engine. This is very dangerous. You need to stop asking questions and let me work. This brought me quiet. I used this to figure out how to get my family out of yet another van breakdown. The sun was setting, and according to the map, we were about 180 miles from our destination in Spearfish, South Dakota. Since I couldn't fix the engine, the choice was either to tow the van someplace close or to tow it someplace far. 
I decided to have a toad to spearfish. Why is it dangerous? My son asked. I didn't answer. Instead, I called the tow truck. Why can't you fix it? Go throw rocks with your brother. <laughs> so, yeah. And it, and it goes on a little bit to talk about kind of what happened in that moment and, uh, and you know, and so forth. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun reminder that, you know, sometimes the things that happen outside of our control can be the most important things that happen in our lives. Oh yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, man, the clock goddess, I've really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the adventure sports podcast and, sharing a little bit of your book and your heart and your wisdom with us about adventure and an adventure-filled lifestyle. I love it, man. Man, it was so much fun. I'm, yeah, it's amazing how quickly that time went, so I appreciate it. It's an opportunity to be with you. Yeah, it's been great. So for all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening in as Roger and I have our little chat. We really uh, enjoyed our time. Hope you enjoyed it as much or more than we did. And until the next show, make sure that you do get out there and have some fun. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show, or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us, please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is 812-624-5763. You can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast and links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP20 at checkout.